You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday, March 5th reading of the Summit Daily News. My name is Lainey Bueller. Beginning with local news, construction of Slopeside Hall expected to begin this spring, bringing new facilities to the Frisco Adventure Park by Ray Spencer. A new building slated for construction is expected to bring big changes to the Frisco Adventure Park, from additional space for child care programming to new community spaces and office and storage areas for town employees. Slopeside Hall, a two-story, 7,880-square Foot building that will be constructed adjacent to the existing Day Lodge is also expected to be the first net zero emissions building constructed by the town. The community has voiced their interest, and this has been a long time coming, Aaron Sox, the general manager of the Frisco Adventure Park, said. We're very excited to get the ball rolling here. The Frisco Town Council approved a contract for construction of the new facilities last month. That contract sets a $10 million guarantee maximum price for the project, which also includes an outdoor plaza connecting Slopeside Hall and the Day Lodge, a retrofit of the Day Lodge, and construction of a tube storage shed. Frisco Director of Recreation and Culture Diane McBride said crews expect to break ground on Slopeside Hall as soon as possible after the winter tubing season ends on April 9th. One of the major benefits of the project, McBride said, is it will offer a new space for youth programs in Frisco, many of which are very popular and have long wait lists. Sox added that the new multi-use spaces at Lopeside Hall, Slopeside Hall, will house the Frisco Fun Club day camp and were designed with child care requirements in mind. With the new space, the capacity for the Frisco Fun Club is expected to increase from its current cap of 50 children to a maximum of 70 children, she said. This building was created not only with our office space in mind, Sock said, but with child care in mind so we can increase our capacity. The child care aspect is absolutely huge. The multi-use spaces will also be available for community meetings and will be available to rent for special events, according to Sox. Moreover, the Frisco Recreation and Culture Department staff who have operated largely out of the Day Lodge basement since the Frisco Adventure Park opened more than a decade ago, will have new office spaces on the second floor of Slopeside Hall, she said. We've outgrown our operating space at the Day Lodge, Sock said, so this will help us have office space we haven't had in a decade. 
Improvements will also include an outdoor plaza connecting Slopeside Hall and the Day Lodge that Sock said could become a hub for community activity, in part due to its access from the rec path. The new building will also provide additional storage space to meet the Adventure Park summer and winter operational needs, Sock said. She noted that the park currently lacks proper storage and has been relying on temporary storage containers, which are not only at capacity, but are also an eyesore. After the construction of Slopeside Hall, the Day Lodge will also be renovated to expand the existing cafe space, adding more food and beverage options, and to install an elevator to assist staff with movement of equipment, Sox said. McBride noted all the work the town council did to ensure the building could achieve net zero emissions. After an energy modeling study, the town selected a variable refrigerant flow system for heating and cooling, and the building's energy use is expected to be fully offset with the installation of roof-mounted solar panels. All of it coming together is simply beautiful, McBride said. The solar panels are a huge component that I think we worked very hard on with the architect. Construction of the entire project, including the plaza and renovations to the Day Lodge, are expected to be complete by 2024, McBride said. Once completed, she said, Slopeside Hall will have fantastic views of the reservoir and nearby mountains and lots of natural light, making it an enjoyable place for community members. I think it's just going to be a wonderful facility, McBride said. So stay tuned for some great things to come out of the area. Resorts to launch hands-free mobile pass and lift ticket on new My Epic app for the 2023-24 winter season by the Vale Daily staff. Vale Resorts announced Thursday that its new mobile pass and mobile lift ticket technology will be available to guests on a new My Epic app coming in the fall of 2023. The technology which allows your phone to be your ticket to the slopes is planned to be available for the 2023-24 winter season at Vail Resorts, U.S. Resorts, including Breckenridge Ski Resort and Keystone Resort in Summit County, with availability at Canada's Whistler Blackcomb to follow in future seasons. This innovation reflects our commitment to harnessing technology to improve your experience, making it easier to get you on the mountain faster and then help you have the best day exploring, said Tim April, Chief Information Officer of Vale Resorts, in a company news release. The new technology will allow guests to buy their ticket or lift ticket online, activate and store it on their phone in the My 
Epic app. Put their phone in their pocket and get scanned hands-free via Bluetooth technology designed for low energy usage. This reduces the need to visit the ticket window or wait to receive a pass or lift ticket in the mail. Vail Resort said the innovation will also reduce the waste created by plastic cards and RFID chips in line with the company's commitment to zero sustainability pledge. Even after the feature is launched, Vail Resorts will continue to have plastic cards available to any guests who cannot or do not want to use their phone as their pass or lift ticket. The company will also activate the plastic cards of renewing pass holders and mail plastic cards to all new guests for the 2023-24 season as part of the transition to mobile pass and mobile lift ticket. Mobile pass and lift ticket will be available in the new My Epic app, replacing Epic Mix as a new comprehensive app in the fall of 2023. And other features on the new app will include interactive trail maps with GPS location tracking, real-time and predictive lift line wait times, personalized stats including vertical feet, number of lift rides, and other data, my account and pass information including resort access and any restricted dates associated with your pass. Mountain and resort alerts, including operational information like grooming updates, terrain status, snow reports, and base conditions. Direct access to ski patrol for emergency situations. Weather updates, snow cams, and more. Resort charge to pay for in-resort purchases and apply eligible Epic Mountain Rewards discounts by scanning a barcode. My Epic will be available in the Apple App Store and Google Play App Store in the fall of 2023. Current Epic Mix users should be able to update the app on their mobile device and see their existing personalized stats imported over with no data lost. Breckenridge Nurse seeks to be an advocate for patients with new healthcare consulting business by Robert Tan, T-A-N-N. Breckenridge resident Lauren Jefferson is no stranger to loss. After working nursing jobs across the country, she returned home to Summit County in 2017 to care for her father who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. She remembers having to wave to him through the window that separated them during the COVID-19 pandemic, an event she also worked through as a nurse at Centora St. Anthony Summit Hospital near Frisco. It was these experiences that Jefferson said fueled her desire to start her own practice, Lauren Jefferson Health and Wellness Consulting, which seeks to provide intimate one-on-one work with patients pursuing physical and mental care. 
When someone's in their most vulnerable, terrifying moment in life, I want to be there helping them, Jefferson said. COVID exacerbated a problem that already existed. There's not enough time. Through her practice, Jefferson said she can offer patients far longer discussions about their health care needs and decisions than what they may receive in a doctor's office. Jefferson meets with clients three times every four weeks for roughly an hour. During these meetings, she'll walk patients through different options they can pursue based on their health care needs so that they can make an informed decision. Jefferson, who received her nursing degree from Metropolitan State University of Denver in 2014, says she knows the gap that can form between patients and their health care provider due to short discussions and differing views on what is best practice. For this reason, patients often need an advocate for them, both inside and outside the doctor's office, Jefferson said. Sometimes, doctors press patients to go in a direction that they're comfortable with, but which may not be in the best interest of the patient, she said. Jefferson used the example of someone dealing with the end of their life who may be unsure of the best path for them. It could be pursuing procedures and treatments or accepting end-of-life care at home or in hospice, Jefferson said. Along with one-on-one meetings, Jefferson also accompanies patients either in person or virtually during their doctor's visits. Sheik Older, a part-time Summit County resident who served as executive vice president for the Arizona Medical Association for more than 30 years, said this kind of health care approach serves an essential need for some patients especially as seeking health care becomes more and more complex. Having an advocate who's willing to help go through a complex system is an essential thing, Older said. It could make the difference between whether you get the care that you need or getting lost in the system like getting lost in a maze. Older who during his career would visit Summit County frequently, knew Jefferson's dad, whom he called a big part of Summit County life, and met Jefferson at the beginning of her career when she was deciding to enter nursing school. I was really impressed with her commitment to the profession, even at an early age, said Older, who eventually helped to fund Jefferson's business so it could launch. It was a great opportunity, in my mind, to help someone in the county who was providing a service that I thought was desperately needed. Beyond just identifying a patient's problems, Jefferson said her practice seeks to understand how symptoms can be indications of broader issues, both physically and mentally. This more holistic approach, Jefferson said, stems from her training to become a nurse coach. After she completed a six-month-long certification program under the American Holistic Nursing Association, which she began in March of 2021, Jefferson was granted the ability to start her own practice 
as a nurse coach. Dory Welsh, also a nurse at Centura St. Anthony, and a colleague and friend of Jefferson, said she became interested in the nurse coaching course and its philosophy after speaking with Jefferson about it. Welsh said she went on to take the course in June of 2021. We love what we do, but oftentimes it felt like the job was unfinished or that we could be doing more for people, Welsh said, adding that her training as a nurse coach equips her to look at patients through a multifaceted lens that focuses on preventative, not just reactive care. Welsh said Jefferson couldn't be a better fit for that type of approach. She's able to meet people where they are, Welsh said. I'm so happy that she's doing this and getting it to be a movement in this area. Jefferson said she hopes work like hers becomes more prevalent in the healthcare industry as illnesses and other health-related problems are often a result of intertwined and un compounding problems, such as a patient's unprocessed grief that can manifest in the body. That piece absolutely affects physical health, and I have the capacity to be there with people when they're going through loss and grief, Jefferson said. I'm hoping that medicine looks more like this in the next 10 to 15 years a photo turned into an iconic image for Steamboat Resort. Edit by Tom Ross. Editor's note, this story was originally published in 2013 and was updated in 2023 as Steamboat Resort remembered the taking of the 1972 photo as it celebrated its 60th anniversary. Steamboat Resort. 41 years have passed since a pair of steamboat ski instructors who knew how to handle a quarter horse as well as they could ski the moguls posed for a photograph that endures as the definitive symbol of this cowboy ski town. Skiers across the world know it as the Steamboat Barn Poster, but it ought to be known as the more barn poster after the longtime ranching family that gave permission for the photo shoot on their property along Pine Grove Road. Joe Semitan remembers well that frigid February morning in 1972 when she and Rusty Chandler climbed into the saddle, he on a gelding and she on a frisky mare owned by Clarence Wheeler and rode through the unblemished snow that reached to the horses' bellies. It didn't hurt that their path took them in front of the classic western barn with the slopes of Mount Werner as a backdrop. The poster that resulted has lured generations of skiers to Ski Town, USA, and has sold many cowboy hats. It was right after Winter Carnival. The shoot was scheduled for the break of dawn, and it just happened to have snowed 18 inches overnight, Samotan said. That was normal, but it also was a blessing. 
It was so deep that Rusty's feet were dragging through the snow. We just had rubber galoshes over our cowboy boots, and it was cold. Mix Bolves, director of sales for the ski area at the time, remembers best that photographer Gerald Brimacombe wouldn't get a reshoot because once the horses had tracked the snow, it would be all over until the next big storm. It was a one-shot deal. We knew we had to get it the first time, Beauvais said. Brimacombe said almost 45 years as a contract photographer for Life magazine had prepared him to expect the unexpected and to make the most of what the weather and the setting offered. In this case, he and Minneapolis-based advertising agency Wilson Griak consulted closely on how the shoot should look. We didn't know about the snow and the lighting, but we went out there, and it was just spectacular, Brimacombe recalled. There was sort of a soft mist in the air, so it wasn't harsh lighting, and the snow was really beautiful. Everyone just set up, I composed the image, and away we went. According to those on the scene, they immediately sensed that it was a beautiful image, but no one could guess that it would turn into an iconic image that would live for a half century or more. Everybody was out of their mind, Semitan remembered. We didn't think too much about it, except we had cold feet. Bove knew it would be a great image, but it wasn't until he began carting the poster to ski shows all across the country that he fully grasped its impact. I always knew it was going to be long-term, Bove said. There was nothing out there like it. An interesting historical note is that the photo opportunity at the barn was a last-minute addition to a multi-day still and film shoot. In those days, the ski area worked with Wilson Griat to create its annual campaign, which included a ski film complete with original music. In that era, of course, the crews were not shooting video, but actual movie film. In February 1972, Beauvais said they were intent on shooting a stagecoach action scene when he and Steve Griak along with Brimacombe, spied the pristine snow in front of the Moore barn and visualized a pair of riders on horseback in the scene with heart skis slung over their saddle pommels. Chandler was a ski jumper from New Hampshire who, under the tutelage of Olympic skier Skeeter Werner, had become expert on alpine boards and risen to the rank of ski school supervisor. Semitan was an Elk River ranch kid who was an expert skier and was able to bring the agricultural and resort communities together. Every year, Mix Beauvais asked me to find a location and get cowboys and horses and stagecoaches because at that time, the relationship between the ski area and the ag area was not real close, Semitan recalled. So it was Semitan who could approach, approach Jerry Moore for permission to shoot on his property and line up the horses from Wheeler. 
Beauvais knew he wanted Chandler for the barn shoot, but Summitan was struggling to find a cowgirl because the local ranch women were busy feeding cattle. Finally, Beauvais realized that Summitan was the obvious choice. Did the photo shoot turn Summitan and Chandler into local celebrities? We took a terrible teasing from the ski school and our friends, Summitan recalled. They'd say, what were you two guys doing in that barn? For the historical record, the two attractive horseback riders were compatriots, but were never romantically involved. Steamboat's claim to being a western ski town is legitimate. Ranchers pioneered the first ski trails on Storm Mountain, and ranchers drove the first grooming machines. But the barn poster was pure marketing genius. Hopper's Alpine Lot would charge for parking next season, following a land use change by Summit County officials by Robert Tan. The days of free parking at Copper Mountain Resort's Alpine Lot could be numbered after Summit County officials agreed to a land use amendment for the site. During a Summit Board of County Commissioners meeting on Tuesday, February 28th, Graham Billenduke, Copper's Director of Development, and Elena Scott of Norris Design, which partnered with the resort, to build an 80-unit workforce housing complex next to the lot, made the case that charging skiers and boarders at the resort's largest parking site next season would help incentivize carpooling and alternate modes of transportation in a bid to reduce traffic congestion. We've experienced quite a bit of growth these past two seasons at Copper, especially coming out of the pandemic, Bill and Duke said. That's caused us to take a look at how we manage our operation, how we receive our guests coming into the resort, and how we encourage and incentivize people to go from single occupancy vehicles to having a higher occupancy car per visit. At the heart of the request to commissioners was the removal of a prohibition on paid parking for the Alpine lot, which can house roughly 1,700 vehicles, which was outlined in the site's planned unit development that dictates land use. Scott said, any implementation of paid parking wouldn't come until at least next ski season. Scott said the goals would be to reduce the number of single occupancy vehicles and promote the use of the summit stage, the county's free bus system. Turning to public safety, the Upper Blue Elementary is one of 11 schools in Colorado targeted by a swatting call on Wednesday by Ryan Spencer. Upper Blue Elementary in Breckenridge initiated lockdown protocols Wednesday morning, March 1st, after receiving a phone call related to the safety of the school that law enforcement later determined to be unfounded, according to the Summit School District. Superintendent Tony Bird notified parents of the lockdown in an email that described the threat as a swatting 
call. Breckenridge police responded immediately, secured the area, and checked the building for any viable threat, but found none, Bird said. He added that the school was one of several across the state to receive such a call. Swatting, Summit County Sheriff Jamie Fitzsimmons said, is a term describing an incident where someone intentionally provokes a law enforcement response by making a fake threat that turns out to not be a real emergency. Breckenridge Police Chief James Baird said in an email, the call came into the Summit County 911 Center a few minutes after 9.50 a.m., prompting the school to lock down out of an abundance of caution. We recognize these false alarm calls can cause significant anxiety for students, staff, and family members, Baird said in the email. This is obviously exacerbated when the children are so young, such as in an elementary school. For this reason, Baird said, after the lockdown, school leadership assembled the students so that Breckenridge Police Department staff could meet with them and reinforce that they were safe and had done a good job following protocols. Police cleared the scene around 11.30 a.m. and the FBI has been notified of the incident and continues to investigate, he said. At least 10 other schools in Colorado reported receiving similar swatting calls on Wednesday, according to the Colorado Information Analysis Center, a branch of the State Department of Public Safety. Just because the threat made in swatting calls isn't real, Fitzsimmons said, doesn't mean the calls aren't dangerous, especially when they target schools. An indictment lines alleged inaction of the Summit School District employees responding to sexual assault claims by Ryan Spencer. This story includes descriptions related to allegations of sexual assault. The first student alleging inappropriate behavior by a Summit Middle School physical education teacher reportedly came forward in late September of 2021. But court documents state that it wasn't until a month later after six more students came forward with allegations against Leonard Grahams that Summit School District employees reported the allegations to police. Last November, Grams pleaded not guilty to five charges of sexual assault on a child, a Class 4 felony, and three charges of sexual assault on a child by a person in a position of trust, a Class 3 felony. The school district placed Grams on administrative leave October 18th of 2021, and he submitted his resignation August 31st, 2022. While investigating the claims, one of the school district employees allegedly said they wanted to make sure Grams was absolutely protected, while another employee reportedly said if students tried again to raise allegations, they would be nipped pretty quick, according to a grand jury indictment filed with the 5th Judicial District Court on February 24th. 
That indictment led prosecutors to file charges against three Summit School District employees and one former employee. Each defendant was charged with a single count of failure to report child abuse, a Class Three misdemeanor. The indictment of district employees comes about six months after the police arrested Grams on August 9th of 2022. Summit Middle School Principal Greg Guevara, Summit Middle School Counselor Maureen Flanagan, Human Resources Specialist Amanda Southern, and former Human Resources Director Grant Schmidt are each facing a charge. After the first student told Flanagan that Grams touched her breast during a high-five frenzy in one of his classes, Flanagan had the student write a statement about what happened and provided that statement to Guevara on September 30th, 2021, according to the indictment. Guevara initiated an inquiry the court's document states and spoke with the student and Grams who denied the allegations as well as the student's parents. According to the indictment, it was recommended to Guevara that the student be forensically interviewed, but the principal reportedly disregarded that recommendation and closed the investigation as inconclusive. By mid-October of that year, two additional students had come forward. According to court records, one student alleged Grams lowered his hand to rest on her butt while spotting her on a climbing wall and touched her inappropriately again while checking her safety harness, according to the court document. The indictment states the student said Grams touched her everywhere but the harness. The school district's Human Resources Department initiated an investigation led by Schmidt and Southern into the two additional students' allegations on October 18, 2021, according to the indictment. Summit School District Superintendent Tony Bird said in a letter to parents Tuesday that Guevara and Flanagan have been placed on administrative leave until further notice and added that the school is making plans to support students on Flanagan's caseload. Grams is scheduled to appear in Summit County District Court on Thursday for a motions hearing. His trial is scheduled to begin April 23rd. The first court date related to the case involving charges of failure to report child abuse is scheduled for April 19th, according to the news release from the 5th Judicial District Attorney's Office announcing those charges. The District Attorney's Office and Summit County Sheriff's Office are asking any other potential victims or anyone with information related to these cases to contact Detective Sergeant Mark Gaffari at 970-423-8960, according to the release. 
Vail Mountain blows past last season's snow total with more powder on the way. By John LeConte. Vail Mountain. On the final day of February, snow blanketed Eagle County during a storm that brought Vail Mountain's cumulative snow total to 268 inches. With more than seven weeks left in the season, that's more snow than Vail had recorded all of last season. Last season, Vail Mountain's cumulative total for the year was 264 inches. And there's more snow on the way as well. Snow fell during the afternoon hours on Wednesday, and the National Weather Service's Grand Junction office says more should continue to fall from Thursday all the way through Tuesday. Wait and ski. That's W-E-I-G-H-T. Vail Mountain's snow stake is located next to a USDA snow telemetry telemetry S-N-O-T-E-L snowtel site where remote measuring devices monitor not just snow but the weight of the snow through something called snow water equivalent or the amount of water in the snow. Currently, Vail Mountain Snowtel site is showing a snow water equivalent of 15.9 inches, which is 115% of normal over a 30-year average. The 30-year average is currently based on the snowpack from October 1st, 1990 through September 30th, 2020. Vail's totals are quite a bit better than nearby Copper Mountain, which is showing 11.6 inches of snow water equivalent on its snowtail site, or, <clears throat> excuse me, 101% of the average. A banner year across the West. But Vail can't compare to some of the other ski areas across the West that are having a season for the record books. Snowbird in Utah, co-founded by Dick Bass, one of Vail's original investors, has recorded more than double Vail's total for the season at 541 inches. Nearby Alta and Brighton are also over the 500-inch total as well. Sugar Bowl, the first ski area in California to install a chairlift, had recorded 497 inches as of Wednesday. Sugar Bowl on Wednesday began accepting its spring pass. A $399 late season pass that works from March 1st to April 23rd. The April 23rd closing at Sugar Bowl is two weeks later than originally planned. The decision to extend the season came in February. In Colorado, Steamboat Resort also announced in February it would extend its season by a week, a rare move for the Northern Colorado Resort. Steamboat last extended its season in 2007, but that was only a single day extension. You'd have to go back 30 years to the 1992-93 season 
to find another one-week extension in Steamboat's history books. Last season, Vail Mountain announced in March that it would extend its season by one week, crediting both its snowmaking system and Mother Nature. When Vail Mountain announced the extension on March 7th, it had recorded 190 cumulative inches on the season. Vail Mountain is currently planning to close on April 23rd. This is unprecedented. The avian flu has killed 12,000 birds in Colorado. The highly pathogenic avian influenza, or bird flu, sweeping across the globe has killed more than 12,000 wild birds in Colorado, and the virus is jumping into mammal populations as well, state wildlife officials say, and it's unclear when the spread might relent. This is unprecedented, Christy Pabalonia, Director of Clinical Diagnostics for Colorado State University's College of Veterinary Medicine and Biological Sciences said. The fact that it's now so distributed with our wild bird populations, there are a lot of questions about the best next steps. That death toll is likely a significant underestimate of the true number of Colorado's wild birds killed by the virus, Travis Duncan, spokesman for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, said. The number of birds in commercial flocks, largely chickens and turkeys, killed by the virus is far higher, which has led in part to an egg shortage and price increase across the country. Water managers set criteria for conservation program participation by Heather Sackett of the Aspen Journalism. Glenwood Springs. Water managers in western Colorado are helping to shape a water conservation program with policies they say are aimed at protecting water users. Last week, Board members of the Glenwood Springs-based Colorado River Water Conservation District unanimously approved criteria that the organization will use to evaluate applications for the System Conservation Program. To gain approval from the River District, whose mission is to protect, conserve, use, and develop water in the 15 western slope counties that it covers, an applicant must be a farm operator, not just a landowner, and the entire payment must go to the farm operator, an increase from the 40% of the payment the River District initially proposed. This is intended in part to prevent a situation where a landowner enters their acres in the following program, leaving a tenant farmer with no land to farm and the resultant loss of their livelihood. This is a fairly simple situation where it would just be paid to the farm operator 
and we stay out of the contractual relationship between the owner and the farm operator, said River District General Manager Andy Muller. The policy also says that no more than 30% of the irrigated land in any one sub-basement and no more than 30% or 240 acres, whichever is less of land owned by a single entity or person, shall be fallowed in any given year. For small farm operations with less than 100 irrigated acres, participants can fallow up to 50% of their land. In December, the Upper Colorado River Commission, UCRC, announced details of a restarted system conservation program that aims to lessen the impacts of drought and to boost depleted reservoirs by paying Colorado River water users in the upper basin states, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming, to cut back. The program initially ran from 2015 to 2018, saving about 47,000 acre-feet of water at a cost of about $8.6 million. An acre-foot is the amount of water needed to cover an acre of land to a depth of one foot. Fueled by a two-decade drought and climate change, the reservoirs have fallen to historically low levels, threatening the ability to make hydroelectric power at the dams. Grand Valley Water Users Association proposes an alternative framework. The Grand Valley Water Users Association is rejecting the concept of paying farmers based on an amount of unused water, even as the association's board voted to participate in the rebooted program. Instead, the association is proposing to pay farmers for each acre they take out of production, thereby tying the payments to the land. According to an information sheet for water users, cooperators would get $1,306 for each acre fallowed for the entire 2023 irrigation season. Fallowing from the beginning of the season through September 30th would get $1,237 per acre, following through August 31st, would get $1,073 per acre, and following just through the summer season, from May 15th to August 31st, would get $686 per acre. We're really hesitant on anything that would make it appear we are removing that water right from the land, or even using verbiage that hints at that. General Manager Tina Bergonzini said, The way we put it in our application is we would be requesting a certain amount of money per acre that's not farmed. We basically are telling them, We are not accepting your $150 per acre foot. We are basing it on per acre. 
a maximum of 1,000 acres of the association's roughly 24,000 would be enrolled in this year's program, and farmers would have to go through the GVWUA. They cannot submit applications on their own. If the applications total more than a thousand acres, the association will hold a drawing to choose participants. Fruit a farmer and GVWUA board member Tom Wood voted against the participation because he said the tight timeline doesn't give water users enough time to plan for this irrigation season. Wood said he participated in the original pilot program, but is undecided if he will do so this time. It's not that I'm against the program, he said. I just didn't think the timing was right for this year. If people are going to participate, they probably need a little more time to consider their cropping sequence. The deadline for applications, originally set for February 1st, has been extended to March 1st. Uh-oh, it's a little late. Bringing balance to the river, the Grand Valley is well positioned for a water conservation program because water left in the river at this location near the state line is almost certain to reach Lake Powell. There are few major diversions between there and the nation's second largest reservoir. But water managers caution that using SCP to boost water levels in Lake Powell is not a guarantee. Unlike the much studied and conceptually similar demand management program, SCP does not have a dedicated pool in Lake Powell for the upper basin states to store water and there is no mechanism to shepherd conserved water past downstream users and into depleted reservoirs. We're trying to show the state we have their back in negotiations with the lower basin to try to come to a conclusion that supports some stability in the Colorado River. And that's the biggest reason that we're doing this. Garfield County Commissioners are hesitant on a modular home production facility aimed at creating workforce and affordable housing. This is from the health section. Garfield County by Ray Erku. Simply providing more affordable housing isn't the end-all, be-all answer. Rifles representative on the Garfield County Commission said, We can't build a house for everybody for free and give them money to live on. That is not going to work, Garfield County Commissioner Mike Sampson said during the regular commissioners meeting on Monday. We need, along with affordable housing, jobs where people are self-sufficient. Sampson said this right before joining commissioners Tom Jankowski 
and John Martin in unanimously approving a $100,000 allocation to the Colorado River Board of Cooperative Education Services, BOCES, a parachute-based nonprofit that specializes in creating pathways between local students and careers in technical education. Local Habitat for Humanity President Gail Schwartz requested on Monday that the commissioners approve a letter of support for Habitat to go after a $500,000 grant through the United States Department of Agriculture. If received, the funds would support construction costs of the facility proposed for rifle. But the commission, after addressing their own personal concerns over the proposed facility, didn't immediately vote on the letter and instead asked Schwartz to come back to the next commission meeting to gain approval. They also expressed hesitancy to provide funds for the project if they are requested later on. Jankowski worried that by giving any possible funds to a nonprofit to build a modular home manufacturing facility would compete directly with private companies like Echo Dwelling. It goes back to private enterprise, the American capitalist free trade market versus nonprofit. Habitat for Humanity has most recently built 27 affordable units in basalt, listed at $270,000 to $370,000 apiece. It's currently working with Glenwood Springs to build 18 units and also currently building 20 affordable housing units in South Rifle, some listed as low as $185,000. Habitat hopes to start construction on the rifle facility late this year or early 2024. Obituaries. Ruth Campbell passed March 1st. Sorry, February 17th, a longtime Summit County local. He passed suddenly. He is survived by his wife, Bruce. Boy, Ruth. Edwin W. Baker passed December 12th at Porter Hospital in Denver. Barbara Jean Corwin passed February 15th at the age of 72 after her year-long fight with cancer. This past summer, Barb had been getting her strength back from the original chemotherapy treatments, taking hikes on Betty's Trail and walking into town. But just before Thanksgiving, this horrible disease reared its ugly head again, and Barb could not fight it off. Barb's graciousness, warm and caring personality, and her beautiful smile were some of her many attributes. One friend said that when she recently saw her, she was luminous and glowing. Barb did know how to light up a room. Thank you for joining us for the Summit News. My name is Lainey Bueller. If you enjoyed this program, 
please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.